All right, welcome back to episode 20 of Building a Fighter. As always, my name is Dr. Austin Shane, sports chiropractor in Scottsdale, Arizona. With me, I have the beautiful, the birthday boy, Alex Friedman. The man just turned 26 today. He's a badass strength coach in Colorado, right in the city of Denver. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about functional movement, where the, where the kind of paradigm of functional movement started, and because it's such a big topic nowadays, as well as different factions within it, and what you as a combat athlete or a combat athletic coach needs to know about these different people and these different factions. Yeah, I think the, the meat of the uh, functional training systems or the functional movement movement is um, is how important is it to actually athletic performance? You know, how, how much time should you be doing corrective exercise or, or how many tweaks should we make an exercise more functional before we get kind of get lost in the weeds of quote-unquote movement? And I think that whole the whole exercise and functional movement thing was brought about, you know, through Gray Cook and through his book and the FMS and, and things that he's developed along the way. And I think it's all great information, very good resource that he's expanded upon. But I think there are limitations as to they can't be exclusively what you're about. I mean, maybe in a general population where you're correcting a lot of things, and you're trying to get people to live their everyday life a little more healthier and a little less pain. That's, that's going to be a great application of exclusively functional movement. But in the area of high performance, uh, I think we need to put it in a prioritized hierarchy of our training demands. Well, I think it's also, it's a like function of the FMS or the SFMA or whatever movement screen you want to do, the building a fighter movement screen coming to you 2021 um, is different there it's a good way to pick up on deficiencies in movement right it's a good way to pick up on glaring deficiencies so if you have like uh what fms you're going to do the inline lunge so if you have an inline lunge but on the left side that is far superior than the right side we probably need to train that pattern on the right side right but outside of that like what what i like about what alex is saying is how much does that apply into our into our performance in sport because I've heard stories, I've seen it personally with my athletes in combat sports, but I've heard stories in all of the other major sports that these guys that are like LeBron James, uh, Patrick Mahomes, all these top level athletes, they couldn't fucking pass that FMS test to save their life because they're just good at their, they're, they're fantastic football players, fantastic fighters. That doesn't equate to a perfect mover. So I feel like a lot of the times with functional training, whatever lens you're going after, you try to make them a perfect mover, but a perfect mover doesn't necessarily translate into a perfect athlete. And yeah. th that that's that disparity. A hundred percent. I think that that's a, a unique or not maybe a, a good critique of the FMS and, and movement on itself is, is looking at top level performers and then seeing that they are deficient in some of these movements, but we kind of said in a previous podcast, functional is as functional does, you know, something that's quote unquote dysfunctional on the FMS may be a huge value to LeBron James on the basketball court. You know, maybe, maybe that inline lunge is off, but because he can stabilize from awkward positions and not in a straight line, it benefits on the court somehow. So it's, again, critically analyze any of those tools that we're using in, in the movement itself and what is textbook versus what is effective? I think I think those are two different things and important to differentiate when we're looking at high-level performance, which is oftentimes not healthy or not um, good per se. I also, like, I don't want to 
shit on the FMS a whole bunch because I love what it did for society and what it did for our our profession in general, Uh, all of the different professions that build into building a fighter. It allowed us to create a common language between healthcare professionals, uh, strength coaches, sport coaches, all these different things, all these different factions, and it allowed them to kind of talk the same, the same way about a certain thing. So when I look at these different, these different uh, factions like DNS, FMS, PRI, FRC, are, are we better off for having them? 1000%. We are better off that Greg Cook made the FMS. But when you take that as the only thing that as, as the Bible of movement, that's a problem because there's so many different ways that high performers move and so many different ways to become the best athlete possible. Like to bring it into a sport coach side of thing, there's straight up Jordan Burroughs, power wrestlers. And then there's Ben Askren, the scrambly wrestler. Who's to say one way is better than the other. Both of them are going to have completely different FMS scores on functional movement and completely different skill sets, but they both are the best at what they do, which made them some of the best wrestlers to ever walk this earth. Yeah, I think um, a million times percent. It, it's got to be hugely individualized. And then perspective is the biggest thing. Like there's a lot of danger in absolutes. So if if any one of those systems is your absolute end game goal to then go to, then I think you're missing the boat a little bit in not seeing the whole picture and not seeing different lenses. And I think this is something we want to get into with our different systems of movement or lenses or movement screens, all the acronyms that Austin kind of outlined before is use them all as tools in the toolbox, but lenses to look at, um, different problems through right as coaches we see these quote-unquote movement problems and whether we need to address them or not is a decision in itself and then if we decide yes we need to address them what's the best tool to use or, or what's the best lens to look at it through and then and then that's where we can go from there and that's where these these systems of, of movement have their value is is how can we best apply them to a unique movement problem that we're seeing within our athletes and it also uh, another thing to note is everything we've talked about so far is going to be on the the spectrum of what's called a corrective exercise a corrective exercise is supposed to be the phase between acute pain and high performance. It's right in the middle. It gets you to your goal. If you need to fix a problem or a deficiency, that's how you fix it. But again, if you get stuck in what's what's we call in healthcare or in, in like manual therapy, corrective exercise purgatory, then you're going to get stuck in purgatory. You're never going to, you never are going to feel com- confident or comfortable going to that back squat, going to the heavy loads that you need to then get back into loading the pattern and making it more efficient and make it translatable into your sport. So focusing, focusing on that and focusing on being able to like not just use correctives, but realize that correctives are just one tool. All of these different correctives in general, all the acronyms have already said, it's just one tool in your toolbox. And if that's all you're doing, they're never going to progress through to the highest level of performance. Yeah, man. I, I remember first learning about a lot of this stuff in, in quote unquote movement, as opposed to some of like the meathead strength training that I began doing when I was in high school or whatever. And I, I would get to a point where my my movement prep and my warm up took 40 minutes, you know, and like I had a, I have a lot of deficiencies and I had a lot of deficiencies, but that's not the correct priorities, you know. Maybe it is if I'm right out of a fight or I got a lot of time to recover, maybe that's when we can work on some of those movement deficiencies or things. But a, a movement prep and a warm-up should not take 45 minutes. 
um, if your goal is a strength training session or, or performance in that session. So putting it in the right priority, but then also understanding exactly like Austin said is like, it's a tool and it's, it should be isolated and you got to find the big rocks that you need to hit or something that you need to work on every day. Not, not everything, you know, the textbook perfect mover doesn't exist. I promise you that I, I tried to be that for a very long time. Um, but the human body is resilient in itself and it's not as fragile as, as if I don't hold this perfect T-spine position in my bent over rows, I'm going to get injured. You know, there's a, there's a spectrum of movement that your body can tolerate and that we as coaches should be able to uh, see that. And then hopefully over time, get used to that range of movement for an individual. And then that's how we can analyze and cue and understand where movement deficiencies come from or where we can attack them at their cause, not at their symptom. Well, and I love using these different exercises and I love using these different um, correctives, if you will, to build something what, what's termed functional capacity, right? So there's the difference between absolute capacity, how much weight can you lift up for one rep and functional capacity? How much weight can you lift up while maintaining that 10% on either side of the spectrum of good form, right? So and that's an extremely important thing to help develop along the way. But again, if that's all you're focusing on, you're never going to progress to high performance. So in a, common, a common example of this for a striker is going to be that lumbar extension or that low back extension when they try to throw a, uh, like a hard two where they lean in, they lunge, and they arch their low back to get a little bit further. Good ways we can go around training that are trying to maintain one of the three letter, ac letter acronyms, DNS. Um, that's my breathing stuff that I always talk about that I'm so passionate about and I love so much. Um, using, using DNS concepts or using like what Alex said previously, using that lens and then adjusting our exercises accordingly. So dropping the weight, doing those little baby exercises that if you follow me, you've seen me post about and try to build up that functional capacity. But at the end of the day, the, one of the best ways to make a neurologic change is once you know that you've improved functional capacity, then you want to load the pattern to increase that neural recruitment of the area. And then that's going to be what translates over. That's going to be what helps them make that brain to muscle connection is the increase in load that's going to allow them to have better motor control. That better motor control translates into our sport. And that, that's, that's really what fucking matters because they don't want to be on your table forever and they don't want to be in the weight room forever. These, you guys are all combat athletes. You get it. It's not as fun as punching somebody in the face. Right. And I think, I think we should take a second and talk about that a little more. Like I, and I think this is a common question and a common um, feeling for the athletes is like, it's like, why am I doing all this small corrective bullshit when I should be training hard or when I could be doing, you know, something better or, or perceivedly is going to help my performance more because, you know, it's not very often that you have maybe someone doing a prone press up or like a Cobra from yoga. And they're thinking, Oh, this is getting me better at performing and better at hitting people in the face, you know? Um, so I think a really good coach is able to bridge that gap and explain how, how these small correctives are going to end up turning into that performance advantage or just the healthcare on the back end too, because some of these exercises are not specifically geared towards performance. They're geared towards living a healthier life and helping this athlete um, be able to function at a higher level more often. So explaining that or being able to see the transition, I think differentiates sometimes a, a good coach from a great coach. But the end point there too is, is just like Austin said with, 
finding the lumbar extension and where that applies in the sport is being able to, as a coach, identify your buckets or your big rocks that you're putting in the jar, being able to identify where we should spend some more time, correct those specific movements and where we need to maybe spend less time. Um, so understanding that I don't need to hit from head to toe every mobility at the joint, every perfect type of movement, every stability, but maybe with an athlete that I see is lacking in a lumbar extension or lacking in the capability to get there. Maybe that's a big rock that I can throw a corrective into the program two or three times a week or, or every day in their movement prep or something like that. I can take that specific area, that big rock and put it into the, the glass jar in order to build the space and be more effective with how I'm programming or what I'm doing. Well, and that comes down to where, where your, one of your mentors has says it best, assess, don't guess. And if you don't know what's going on with your athlete, you like, then you're just going to throw, like you said, an hour of just mobility at them. When in reality, they came to train. If you, if you figure out the most common deficiencies in your athlete, so say it's lumbar extension or say it's, it's, it's mid back, they don't have the mobility of thoracic spine rotation, mid back rotation, and they're a striking athlete. That's an issue. That means it's going to, it's either going to go down to the low back or it's going to go up to the shoulder. And both of those places where the, the mid back doesn't move, the shoulder is supposed to move, but it's going to have to move more to make up for the mobility deficit of the mid back which is going to tear up your labrum, it's going to tear up your AC joint, all these different things. So doing that assessment, doing a uh, sideline archer to see side-to-side thoracic mobility, and then throwing them through mobility exercises is targeted. But if all you do is mobility, that's never going to stick. And uh, again, just on that same topic, I listened to a good uh, podcast this week, I think with, oh, I forget his first name, Dr. Locke. He's a, a PT um you know i'm talking about he talks a lot about glute activation i think it was on a squat university podcast sorry i'll link that in the show notes so it sounds about right squat university dude that dude's been putting out some fire content recently yeah, yeah all of his yeah. one-liners are fantastic i like what he's saying yeah um but something that and then it was also on the mike and brooker podcast with cal Beats that i listened to but they're talking about you know throwing random general um, corrective is that an athlete, you know, your glutes not firing, do these glute isometric, but you're not actually testing whether your glute is firing, right? So if you're firing in a bad pattern and I throw these general correctives at you and you're still firing a bad pattern, I haven't addressed the problem. I just gave you more shitty practice, right? Right. So yeah. you need to assess, teach, and then create an intervention that is actually effective and then measure again, right? So, so understanding that, that process and that, that teaching process gives you an actual insight into creating change versus do this thing. It's a magic bullet, right? I think every coach in general is full, filled with magic bullets. You know, you got this problem, do this, it'll fix it. Not necessarily. I think there, there's a lot of context and there's a lot of teaching that needs to be done along the way. Um, so, and when, except I, and when for, I... Except for breathing. Breathing is legitimately a magic bullet. I'll be real <laughs> honest with you. <laughs> Speaking on that, I'm going to go off again with another reference. Um, I saw an Instagram post. I think it's a tweet by Eric Cressy um, where he was talking about, and, and this ties into our corrective discussion, is you have to be aware of the, the benefit that you're um, creating within your intervention with what actually is giving, what's the benefit, but also what's the negative or what's the downfall that could be associated with that, right? So um, talking about doing too many correctives or exclusively doing corrective, you're losing out on time you could spend on on different priorities that are maybe more appropriate for the situation. But uh, 
one of the ones that he said, Austin, which I thought was kind of funny um, with your passion on breathing. He said, a heavy focus on breathing cues may improve movement quality, but it may make an athlete more internally focused and impair high-end performance initiatives. Oh, 100%. I don't so, disagree with that at all. Right. So it's how you communicate, it's how you communicate yeah. the breathing that, and that's what it comes down to. And I'm not, I'm not going to go off on a tangent. I've had too many tangents on breathing <laughs> on this podcast, but it, it, it all comes down to how you communicate the breathing and how, how your cueing actually is. Because if you're telling them to focus on their breath, every rep, you're going to turn them into literally an internal nightmare, an internal cueing nightmare. But if you just say you, instead of that, you throw a jujitsu belt around their waist when they go, and just say push air into that and never just say it once at the beginning of the session, guess what? That's one cue. That's one slice of the pizza. Yeah. That was actually a really funny anecdote that I had uh, when I first started rolling jiu-jitsu and I was wearing the gi and it was like a new thing, right? Because I you wrestle in spandex, you know? Yeah, yeah. I hate having all that cloth around me and like... Dude, it's a pain um, in the ass. Right? And then my biggest complaint, I was like, man, I'm a wrestler and I'm wearing all these clothes and people keep grabbing my clothes and they keep trying to choke. What the hell? <laughs> but that's jujitsu yeah. in a nutshell. But... um. And they grab your the heels. I, I immediately tap if they grab my heel. Like I ain't fucking. I ain't fucking with my knees. Like you're good. Yeah, I, I've uh, I've tried to been learning, but still getting tapped by uh, like. But anyway, the back to the jujitsu. Um, the belt. I put on the gi, and I would always tie my belt really tight because I felt good because I could breathe into it and finally stabilize my my spine maybe in, <laughs> in a more correct way. So I was always tying my tight my belt really tight, and then. I look at the professors and their geese are just kind of hanging off of them. And uh, I thought that was just a funny thing because I was like, I was breathing into it. I was using almost like a weight belt as I was uh, doing jujitsu, as I was sitting around and it felt really good on my spine. But, uh, but it just shows how important breathing is into stabilization and into what your body kind of signals back to you. Oh yeah. And another thing we could talk about is there's a, there's a prime example of what we were talking about. Like anybody can be a movement professional. Like yeah. literally there, it's just like a what nutritionist, quote unquote, mm-hmm. anybody can be a movement specialist, quote unquote. It's not a, it's not a licensed profession. It's not a, like it's, there's no consequences for calling yourself a movement professional. So a lot of work needs to go into making sure that you're not getting duped. Like we had talked about in previous podcasts where you're, you're talking to a snake oil salesman. Um, one, one person that I, I feel like gets a lot more credit than they probably should is going to be that Ido Portal guy that's worked with Connor. He worked with Connor for about five years. He made Connor move better. And he's, he, he's a perfect example of don't, or he's a perfect example of he lives the life that he preaches to people, but there's, he was saying that it's a, it's a magic bullet. Everything he's doing is a cure all. When in reality, like we just keep talking about this type of stuff has a ceiling to it. Being a better mover is always going to have a ceiling. If you don't seek out other interventions as well, if you don't seek out the strength, if you don't work on your performance, if you don't work on your skills, being a better mover only gets you so far. So you got to make sure when you're finding a, um, a movement specialist or a strength coach or whoever you're going to, or a healthcare practitioner, whoever you're going to, to increase your movement quality, because it is important to increase movement quality sometimes, you need to make sure they're not a snake oil salesman telling you uh, this is the only way you do things. Because that's, that's going to, in the end, hinder your performance. Yeah, and I think that's something that the practitioners we should be aware of. But even if you you are going to somebody and that and they you really um appreciate and you really see their their movement as kind of the way forward, 
understand that perspective within your own training. You know, I'm going to this movement professional and I'm only going to go there two times a week because that's not the, the end all be all in my training instead of maybe buying in and, and losing out on some other more impactful training by going there six or five times a week. Um, so just put that in perspective within your whole MMA training catalog, right? This is how important is that um, specific corrective movement piece. And it becomes really important when there's an injury or it comes really important when there's other training initiatives inside, because I think of myself and I think of when I program, I have a couple different reasons I program corrective, you know, sometimes it's postural. Sometimes I think uh, I'm going to take somebody or I could help improve somebody's general pain or general um, soreness by creating postural corrective. Sometimes it's, there's a movement deficiency and I, I see that pattern throughout their entire performance and we really need to address that and we can hit it hard. And then other times we're addressing a, a movement or a corrective strictly to prepare them for higher intensity training. So and then in my mind, that goes to like a front squat. Front squat has a lot of kind of prerequisites for performance. And in the way that I teach the front squat, we have to have a lot of ankle mobility. So there's going to be some ankle mobility correctives in the front end of somebody's program simply to prepare them to front squat. Not necessarily because more ankle mobility is going to, you know, make them a better jujitsu practitioner, make them a better, you know, fighter, but that ankle mobility serves a purpose within my program within itself because the front squat in general will impact some of those athletic qualities later on. So it, again, check your coach, make sure they can explain to you why something is in the piece in the puzzle, why it's there and uh, what the perspective or what the angle of that initiative is. Yeah. And so I want to spend a little bit of time breaking down what, what all of the different factions mean um, just because, just because you see a lot of people that have 97 letters behind their name and you like, like I said, this is a podcast for you guys. This is a podcast for the, sp the skill coaches trying to push somebody to a good healthcare practitioner or a strength coach or for the athlete that, that might not know about these different things. So, and I'm going to make it brief. So we got PRI postural restoration Institute. So this is one of the first breathing, um, like correctional continuing educations. We'll call it movement, movement professionals on the market. It's very big in the baseball world, um, as well as in the golf world. And what they do is they focus on a lot of different breathe, like I said, breathing protocols along with mobility of the, the joint by joint approach. So ankle needs mobility, knee needs stability, hip needs mobility, this type of approach adding in with their thoracic rotation and with their breathing. It's a good place to start. And there's a lot of good practitioners that do that. On the same paradigm, there's going to be your DNS, your dynamic neuromuscular stabilization people. This is out of, this is something that I'm passionate about. Like I said, it's just a tool in my toolbox. It's not the only thing I do, um, but this is going to be focusing on breathing as well as developmental kinesiology. So developmental kinesiology means it's trying to, use patterns that you innately have when you're born and bring them into being able to move. And these patterns that are already ingrained in, in your brain, reigniting those, so to say, and allowing you to reaffirm those patterns to decrease tension um, through the system, as well as repattern that functional capacity that we've talked about. Then a huge one in combat sports, a lot of you guys are going to see is going to be FRC, functional range conditioning. Um, or FR functional range. Uh, this one is going to be one that it's, it's huge in the MMA world because the creator is a jujitsu black belt. Um, he, he does a good amount of work doing mobility as well as stability of end range joints. Um, and this allows you to increase like um, 
If you want Instagram, there's a guy named Dr. Kickass, fantastic Instagram account for MMA practitioners um, as well as MMA fans. He does a breakdown of different joint locks and different different UFC events, but he is a kin stretch and a FRC guy. And what he end up, he's a physical therapist. And what he does really well is he talks through the different joint mechanisms, how to increase and decrease ranges of motion, as well as like the one I just saw today, it's in my brain is Kimura proofing your shoulder. So how to stabilize at end range, that range of motion so that your brain realizes that it's not in pain. So getting the difference, basically what FRC does well is it decreases the space between flexibility. So how far somebody can move your, your joint and mobility how far you actively can move your own joint. That's what it does really well. And then you can move into, there's a few other ones. There's like animal flow, uh, Edo Portal stuff. Like I talked about all of these different primal movement patterns. So it's going to base it around ground-based exercises. So moving like an animal or on the ground um, and integrating your or functional patterns is another one similar to this and moving on the ground in a way that is going to try to target the entire body in a flowing system. The reason why I wanted to bring all these up and, and I, I just want to give you guys an understanding of what's going on and what you're getting into. If you see this behind somebody's name, when you're going to see them, because a lot of people, it, it sucks, but a lot of people don't have me and Alex's approach where this is just a tool in your toolbox. A lot of people, this is all they do. So you should be like, and it, it sucks because that that's going to hinder you. But if you see those letters behind, you should know what you're in for when you, when you try to get in there and work with these people. Yeah. Same on the practitioner. And you should critically assess what, what you're learning and, and how you're going about these interventions. Like even for me, I just wrote down two of those certifications that Austin just talked about or two of those systems that I want to dig into more. And I want to look at and potentially, you know, purchase, and, but I'm not going to purchase them to become a disciple or to become a, a, a preacher of that specific system. I, I would purchase them to take them with a grain of salt, to learn them, to uh, understand where they can best fit into my strength and conditioning coaching approach. Um, and I think it's important as a practitioner, as a coach, to communicate that to your athlete. You know, I utilize this FRC because I know these are, are these can be some of the benefits. I'm not, I'm not going to make everything your whole workout this, but this is one specific intervention that can help with that problem that we saw or that you had previously. Um, so I think as a, a practitioner, it's important to communicate that to your athlete and the level of, of knowledge that you share, the level of intricacy um, should be variable because, you know, there's a reason you're a professional at, at what you do. And there's a reason that an athlete wants to be an athlete and doesn't want to know everything about those certifications, but having a upfront, honest communication with the athlete and with why you selected an intervention, I think is just good practice in general. Yeah. And, and another thing is like, like you kind of just said, Alex, is you got to know what the goal behind what you're doing is. We've, we've talked about it the whole podcast and it's talking about um, like you can use correctives to get people out of pain. You can also use correctives to increase functional capacity, but that comes down to, you need to know the sport that you're working with and the athlete that you're working with. So like something that I do, like MMA is a very striking in general is a very ipsilateral sport. So that means the hip, the same side hip and the same side shoulder move in the same direction when you throw a hook or when you throw a cross or a kick, what's, what have you. If I'm trying to decrease somebody's pain in this mechanism, then I'm not going to continue to load an ipsilateral pattern. That makes no sense. So I'm going to choose correctives that are going to be a contralateral stability pattern. And I'm going to do like our low bears that, again, if you follow me, you know, those are my favorite exercise on this freaking earth. But 
if I'm going to increase their functional capacity, then I'm going to give them a shitload of ipsilateral patterning drills in their warm-up to allow them to increase functional capacity or add in a, a lateral lunge, which is going to be just moving in the frontal plane and being able to stay within that left arm, left leg paradigm, stuff like that, that allows me to just pattern that movement. And so I think that that's usually important. And same thing applies when I, I'm going through my strength and conditioning. I, I maybe look at it. And again, if I know the individual well, I can plan accordingly like that. But if I am working with a group of athletes or if it's a, a new session, you know, I'm going to plant these seeds early, try and create some of those, um, some of the movement capacity. Is that what you're saying? Functional capacity. capacity. Yeah. Try and increase some of the functional capacity of these specific areas or these specific buckets that I've identified in the sport um, prior to the session. You know, so if I'm working with a grappling athlete, I know that, you know, isometric strength and stability and and specific positions is going to be hugely important. So I can plant some of those seeds in the warm movement prep, um, you know, in between exercise blocks, I can plant some of those seeds and increase that functional capacity so that when I want to emphasize it or train it in a um, vertical integration process, they have some capacity that are ready and they're ready and they're uh, adequately prepared to make that an emphasis in their training. Yeah. But I, I would almost, I would almost put money on it that you wouldn't do the same at least you might do the same correctives, but you wouldn't have the same purpose for working with your football players that you work with a bunch and with a grappling athlete. Nope. And it comes down to you, you in particular know the sports that you get, that you're working with. And you need to make sure that you like the person that you go to say you're in Bufu, Alaska, and you're going to, and cause there's a lot of fighters up there. Not a lot of people know that that's a pretty big fighting culture. Um, and you got to go to, you're trying to find somebody for strength and conditioning. You need to know who you're going to understands your demand of your sport and what correctives work for you and what correctives work for football. Yeah. And that's very similar. And, and I have a little anecdote for that is, you know, I think two and a half years ago or whenever I was a fellow at, at the University of Denver, something that came across my, my desk or came onto my plate is I was be the head club strength and conditioning coach for the rugby. You know, I'm born and bred in American football culture in the Midwest. I had no idea what rugby was. I never played rugby. I never even watched a rugby match. Uh, maybe I knew this, the name of the sport was probably the extent I got into it. But first thing I did is I started watching rugby videos and then I went to a few practices got involved in a few practices, you know, learned the sport myself by doing. And then I knew better what their demands of their sport were so that I could program and be a better coach for them. I think that that holds a lot of values. And maybe you're not in a position where you can actually go play the sport, which you should attempt to if you can. You know, I, I think doing jujitsu and learning jujitsu has 100% made me a better strength coach for anybody that's a fighter or jujitsu practitioner. Um, playing rugby, being involved in the rugby has yielded a great relationship between me and the coach and the team and also given me a lot more awareness of the physiological demands and the biomechanical demands of the sport of rugby. Uh, so getting involved and getting that knowledge, I think should be a priority uh, in yourself as well as in your coaching. Um, I know another coach that I had previously worked with got a lacrosse team that he had to strength and condition and program for. He didn't know anything about lacrosse. First thing he did, he learned how to shoot and how to pass a lacrosse, a lacrosse ball from a stick, which uh, that's, I mean, kind of fun because it's new skill acquisition, but it also gives you an insight into a sport that you, you wouldn't necessarily have otherwise. Well, and it comes down that that knowing about the sport allows you to use these movement screens or make your own movement screens or and stuff that you use. Because if you know about the sport and you understand the demands, 
you're going to make them a better mover for jujitsu, a better mover for MMA, a better mover for boxing. It doesn't matter if you're just a good mover. Like that, that's what we started with. And that's what, that's why I want to end on it. It doesn't matter if you're just a good mover. It matters that you're one of the best movers possible for the demands that your sport imposes upon you. And, and that only comes from the coaches that you work with, healthcare practitioners you work with, understanding the demands of your sport and how to move as efficiently as possible. Yeah. Ultimately, I'm not training a, a fighter to become a CrossFit athlete. I'm training a fighter to win fights. So that's a, that's a very specific goal. And then we should tailor a program appropriately that way or not that way, depending on the, the angle. I think that's a good note to leave it on. Hell yeah. Well, if y'all have any questions on any of this, you want to get in contact or talk about any of those um, different say continuing education courses or movement movement skill professional i don't even know what to call them acronyms uh shoot me a message i've basically taken the gamut of all the courses just because i'm a knowledge whore um and or i know about them so let me know as well as if you have any questions at all shoot us an email or shoot us an instagram message from the links in the show notes thank you all for listening this was episode 20 and i cannot wait as we move forward we're going to start bringing on guests we wanted to get through 20 episodes by ourselves before we start bringing on way cooler people than us to talk to you so in the future be on the lookout we're going to have some guests uh and i'm not going to say who yet leading up in the recent episode or in the future episodes. Thank you for listening. Peace. Peace.